When is the last time Mets fans have been this optimistic entering AMLB season? We'll be discussing that with an optimistic Mets fan himself. It's John Boy Media's Jolly Oliven. Jack, I kind of want to start right right there. Uh, can you fill listeners in on the mindsets of Mets fans these days? Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to start the show, I think, uh, as an umbrella to all the players we're going to talk about. Uh, optimism is, is a dangerous thing that many Mets fans are very familiar with. Uh, I think that cautious optimism is something I'm operating with because I like to keep on the positive side. And we've seen the Mets make a lot of great moves in the past two years. Uh, but nothing uh, of this magnitude has quite come forth in my entirety uh, of life as a Mets fan uh, between Max Scherzer and the trio of hitters that we've added to the lineup, plus the report today that they're not done yet. They don't plan to be done uh, on spending money. So it's it, if you're a Mets fan and you're feeling cautiously optimistic, I think stick to your guns. There's no reason to constantly be negative, especially when so many good things have happened to us in the past few months. But it's always a, it's a, it's a, it's always a little t- a bit of a touchy subject there. You and I are both on the younger side. And for me, being a Red Sox fan, I've been fortunate enough to see, you know, a lot of championships and that sort of thing in my lifetime. But I still always lean optimistic. But then, you know, you just see the generation that came before us, especially for the Red Sox. You know, it's it's very heavy pessimistic, pessimistic. Yeah. I know that's the case for Mets as well. So so it is refreshing. I always, you know, just following you on Twitter and, you know, seeing the great work you do on Shea Station. Uh, I, I really do like to see that that optimism I don't know. I guess like the only time that you would have had, you know, more or less heartbreak was would be what, 2015? I mean, yeah, it's, it, it depends on what your definition of heartbreak is, because I think that every year my goal is to just make the playoffs. I want to watch playoff baseball and have some attachment to it. So it can be 2015, but that's so far in the rearview mirror now that I actually more associate with 2019 just because of how fun. Uh, our month of August was and how we won like 21 games that month and had all these crazy walk-offs and wild comebacks. And then the season just kind of fizzled in September and nothing really came of it. And then a division rival won the world series. So I, I think of 2019 a lot more than I do 2015 these days, just because 2015 is seven years ago at this point. I'm I'm really looking forward. There's not many pieces of that team left. It's pretty much just Jacob deGrom and that's it. On the other end of this conversation is Jolly Olive. He is on Twitter at Jolly underscore Olive, and you can find his YouTube channel, Jolly Olive. He does the Shea, I keep messing that up, the Shea (laughs) Station podcast with uh, former Mets pitcher Jerry Blevins, and he works for John Boy Media. Jolly, we were just talking off air a bit. I found your YouTube videos uh, just covering, you know, a wide array of baseball topics on online. I re- just most recently watched your O'Neill Cruz one, and that really nice. got me excited. I'm a big, big prospect fan. So uh, just kind of starting, though, again, like bringing this back to the Mets and where we're at with the lockout and everything. Can you talk us through the Max Scherzer signing and just like how fun of a few days that must have been on Twitter for Mets fans? Yeah, I, I, it's, I'm really lucky to have gotten uh, a couple of days like that back-to-back years between the Lindor trade-in signing and then the Scherzer trade-in signing. Uh, not the trade, but the Scherzer signing. About all the speculation of, will this happen? Won't this happen? All these weird random reports coming from names that you've never heard of before. Are they credible? Is this actually going to happen? And then it finally comes to fruition. You get the Heyman tweet or the Rosenthal tweet that wasn't. And it's just you you don't want to be glued to your phone. It's not really a good thing to you know be endorsing on a podcast. But I was glued to Twitter for three days and it was exhilarating uh, to just speculate and wonder, is this thing that I've joked about numerous times in the past few years actually going to come true? And now that it has, it's 
surreal. And I, you'll get the people that are going to be like, oh, he's so old. He's going to be 40, yada, yada, yada. But I mean, if we want to just check out his stats real quick and we can just go from the 11 starts he made with the Dodgers, which are the most recent games that he's pitched, that's a 1.98 ERA over 68 in the third innings, a 0.82 whip, a solid couple postseason outings. I mean, I think the Mets are getting the real deal still. I think Scherzer's got plenty of years left. And I think that if Scherzer signed with anybody else, you wouldn't be hearing those kinds of comments. But that's business as usual for Mets fans. I think with players like Scherzer, Justin Verlander fell in this category a couple years ago before he had Tommy John. And you just see it in other sports, LeBron, Tom Brady, that where, you know, athletes are pushing the aging curve further than it's ever been. Before. So like yep. 38 in 2022 isn't what 38 was in 2002, for example. So right. that is something on Scherzer's side. And I fully agree with you. That run he went on once he got to the Dodgers, the first nine starts, it was a 0.78 yeah. ERA with an 89 to 8 strikeout to walk rate. So that was like basically as good as we've ever seen him, which is crazy to say uh, to say about a pitcher with three Cy Young awards. This guy was a free agent. Initially, seven years ago, signed the second largest contract ever for a pitcher and then went out and got better and took his game to the next level, to the next level. So the idea of like, it's just open again. I know we're the lockout right now, so it's tough to imagine that. But like just picturing the Mets starting the season with Jacob deGrom and Max Scherzer as the first two pitches on the board, like that's got to be an unreal feeling. It's just so surreal. I already have my ticket for the second game of the season, although it'll probably be canceled the way things are looking, but that's a whole nother discussion. But I, I just having that one-two punch at the top, uh, it's great, but it also makes your rotation very, very top-heavy, which I'm sure is another topic we'll explore in a little bit. I think the Mets need to pursue a little bit of depth behind those two monsters at the top. Maybe a six-man rotation if you're worried about these health concerns that many people are bringing up. It's not a. It's not going to go away. Uh, Scherzer's old. Degrom had missed half the season last year. Maybe you want to get some solid backup depth for these guys. Where do you stand on just the Mets spending money? How they've spent it? You know, this offseason in particularly, but even going back to the Lindor extension and kind of that internal battle that a lot of baseball fans have of, well, it's not my money. But also acknowledging that, you know, the owners don't technically have, you know, bottomless pockets. Right. Yeah, I I think I've spent many years uh, wanting my team to spend more now that it's actually happening. It's definitely a conflicting feeling. I'm with those fans that say uh, it's not my money to spend as much of it as you want to. If anything, I want more teams to follow suit uh, in the Mets fashion and break the bank to make their team better when the time is right. There are teams in the middle of rebuilds trying to stock farm systems. It wouldn't make sense for them to pursue high rate free agents right now. But in terms of where the Mets are at, they have a couple prospects that are really good getting ready for 2023. And they have this year in between those prospects being ready, Brett Beatty and Francisco Alvarez, among others, that they need to fill holes and they need to produce a successful team. So I think that's why they pursued some of these two-year deals with guys like Mark Canna and Mario Escobar to temporarily fill those holes while the young guys are waiting in the wings. I think that if a team is going to be successful, they have to operate on that Dodgers method that we bring up so much of instilling the youth of the team while also still putting money into the team and bringing in other resources. I love that you mentioned the Dodgers, and that really is like the ultimate goal, right? To be competing at the big league level, especially competing in free agency and trades, but also just having this, you know, pipeline of prospects coming through who both can contribute and they serve as trade inventory. As a Red Sox fan, you know, we have Haim Bloom who comes from the Rays, and you Mm -hmm. know, you can see kind of what he's trying to do, build that blueprint. I also think the Dodgers are a good comparison for the Mets right now because I've talked about this. One of my 
best friends is a Mets fan. So I've, I have a lot of Mets conversations with them. I probably think about the Mets more than any other non-Red Sox team. And the comparison I made was the Mets right now should be what the Dodgers were when their new ownership first took over. They did make that huge, you know, Adrian Gonzalez, Carl Crawford, Josh Beckett trade. But then they went out, they spent some more money while they were getting the pieces in place to, you know, eventually be able to develop Cody Bellinger and Corey Seager and Walker Bueller and all those guys. So uh, as long as the Mets kind of hold on to that really high end group of prospects, I like that blueprint for them right now. Yeah, I definitely think the Mets have an extremely top-heavy farm system, but the top heaviness of it is really good. Francisco Alvarez is the top 10 prospect. Brett Beatty has developed really well. Ronnie Mauricio is this interesting trade piece because he's a shortstop. You don't know where you're going to put him. You also got Mark Vientos, who's probably the only guy of that top-heavy class that's going to be ready for next season. He could possibly see some reps at the DH spot if things with Robinson Cano go to the wayside like many expect them to. So at the same time as having these top heavy prospects, I think the Mets, you know, they need to explore these trade options to possibly supplement this farm system further. People remember that the Dodgers weren't always Dodger town. People didn't always want to go straight to L.A. to try and win a ring. They had to build their repertoire and build a name for themselves first because they had been a lackluster team for the better part of two decades. And the Mets are a very similar team in that fashion. The 1990s and the 2000s, the Mets weren't really a factor or a place or a popular landing spot for many players. So you have to build yourself up first. And with signing guys like Francisco Lindor and Max Scherzer, you know, you're probably putting that thought into many other free agents heads. Using a kind of cross sport analogy, that's what we've seen with the Rams, right? The Rams yeah. in the NFL keep going out and trading for these stars. Now Odell Beckham wants to sign there when, when he has the opportunity to do so. Yep. Sticking with the farm system, and, and this is where this is where I struggle with the Mets. And again, like I'm off I'm often giving my buddy a really hard time when it comes to our conversations about certain things. And I did not like again, maybe this was part of what they were trying to do by bringing in Javier Baez at the trade deadline. You talked about the Mets wanting to be, you know, the next Dodgers. Well, what the Dodgers got so good at was not trading away prospects for rentals. They were only right. going to trade the prospects if it was someone who's going to come in and stick around. So when the Mets traded their 2020 first round pick, Pete Crow Armstrong, for two months of Javier Baez, and then you can't offer Baez. Uh, uh, the qualifying uh, you can't, offer. Uh, can't, yeah, exactly. You can't offer uh, buy as a qualifying offer. I just thought that that was an example. Again, I know they were going for it, and I commend that, but it was an example yep. of not having a long-term plan in place. But I know there's been a lot going on GM-wise with them. No, yeah, I, I definitely understand that. And at the time when I read uh, who was leaving in that trade, I definitely winced a little bit because PCA, while being very far away from MLB playing time, probably 2024, 2025, uh, he is, you know, the first round pick from 2020. He had showed a lot of promise. At the same time, I, I, I want listeners to put themselves back into the hysteria that was the MLB 2021 trade deadline because it was a crazy time. And all these moves were being made and the Mets were involved in pretty much none of them. They had traded for Rich Hill and that was it. And time was really running out for them. I do think that some reports uh, indicated that there was a larger trade to be made there involving the likes of Chris Bryant. And I think that trade fell through and that probably put the Mets in, into panic mode. And I'm just happy it wasn't one of the top five guys that we've protected so well over the years, because that truly would have been a catastrophic blow for us, I think. And there's tons of great outfield talent in MLB. 
it's kind of a booming environment for it right now. So I think that while PSA will probably turn out to be a great player with lots of team control for the Cubs, I don't think it's the worst loss, but that's what you said before. That's the model of things that you can't repeat. You can't make that a habit of trading these prospects for rentals, even when the rentals are necessary, because Javi Baez was definitely a necessity for the Mets, even if they fizzled out in the end. Yeah, again, it, it, like mindset's like a great way to put it because I think sometimes, especially with prospect trades, we get too, and this isn't the way that MLB GMs are thinking about it, but fans can get too focused on the micro level takes of who these guys turn out to be. So let's yeah. say, you know, typically more about just fostering that culture of, you know, we're going to hold on to these guys until, you know, we're ready to fully compete and kind of push our chips in. A trade right. that I really did like at the time for the Mets was kind of the Lindor trade, because although you gave up a couple guys with some MLB experience, it wasn't it wasn't those top five studs, you know, stud prospects like Francisco right. Alvarez, Brett Beatty that you mentioned. Uh, the Lindor trade, my God, that was, I think, like the height of Steve Cohen has arrived. Francisco Lindor is here. We're rolling. Can you just like talk us through uh, that? Yeah, so I, I want to backtrack for a second just because when when we talk about the Lindor trade, uh, the Mets, uh, what they gave up in that, I mean, it's a dream when you look back on it. You gave up a couple guys that are on the outer edge of your top 10 that won't be ready until 2025, 2026. You gave up Ahmed Rosario, who was a project that never really panned out. And the one that hurt was Andres Jimenez, but then he ended up having a pretty terrible 2021. So it really looks like the Mets didn't really lose that anywhere there. And these these good trades will happen. These bad trades will happen as well. I mean, you mentioned the O'Neill Cruz video at the beginning of this podcast. The Dodgers traded him to the Pirates for, I think, 30 innings of Tony Watson in 2017, which is a completely lopsided trade because O'Neill Cruz is going to be very good. So bad trades will happen. You can never tell the future as soon as you make the deal. And that's why you shouldn't be afraid of making deals. But the big piece for me in that Lindor trade at the time was Cookie Carrasco because Carrasco had a couple years of control. He was coming off a solid 2020 bounce back and I had really high hopes for him, but obviously injuries plagued him in 2021. I think he makes a solid bounce back next year. He makes that trade look even better. I want to push you a little bit on where we're at with Lindor now. And again, like establishing at the front of the show that you are an optimistic Mets fan and there's the Lindor trade was necessary in the sense of what you were talking about with Scherzer, even like making the Mets a destination that people want to come to, bringing in a winning culture and all of that. If you could undo the Lindor contract right now based off how his first year went and what he ultimately signed for, just any thoughts on on that? Because that's something that I've talked a lot about mm with my buddy is just like the value of that. And that again, extends into the conversation of like, well, it's Cohen's money and, and you know, we go down the same rabbit hole. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's a tough question because I don't really think the Lindor contract is going to uh, shoot the Mets in the foot long-term. I think they'll always have money to spend with the way uh, ownership is now. Uh, that being said, you're, you're going to get a uh, platinum glove defense every year at shortstop, which is always a plus because the Mets have had some horrible defense over the years. Even when they made it to the World Series, they had Wilbur Flores playing shortstop. Um, you got a guy that gave you, I think, a 101 OPS plus last year, 23 home runs, something like that. Solid offensive numbers, obviously not to the pedigree of what that contract entails. But we see that more and more in baseball nowadays. Guys get paid through the nose for their services, and sometimes they don't perform uh, to that pedigree. And I think it was Lindor's first year in New York. I think his best years are ahead of him uh, in New York, at least. But I don't know if you'll see that megastar that you saw in Cleveland when they made the World Series. Lindor was on another planet then. He's a little bit older now. Maybe he needs to find his footing. 
But if you ask me if I would do the deal still, I think I still would just because now we don't have to worry about shortstop for a long time. And that's a notoriously difficult position to fill. So even if you're underwhelmed with Lindor's performance right now, it could be a lot worse. It could be Ahmed Rosario, who's not a natural shortstop. It could be a guy that can't switch hit and play solid defense and play every day and doesn't get injured. Francisco Lindor is a solid option for the Mets. Maybe he's not worth every penny, but he's definitely worth a lot of the contract that he was given. So much of the talk in the fantasy world right now is viewing baseball through the prism of the juice ball era. And just that 2021 was the first year without the juice ball. And we saw a lot of guys who had these kind of unexpected power outputs in years prior kind of come a little bit back down to earth. And when you look at Lindor's career, his power explosion came in 2017, which was the first full season of the juiced ball. Now he was also great in 2016, but it was kind of as a different type of hitter. And I think with Lindo, we just had, you know, whether you want to chalk it up because as a prospect, that wasn't his thing. He was never, you know, going to be a 30 homer guy. Mm -hmm. And if you view it through that, and if he can get back to, you know, kind of being that all field line drive doubles in the gap, steal some power, steal some bases, play elite defense, be a great team leader, you know, At the end of the day, like the contract is what the contract is. He is going to be symbolic of Cohen's tenure in New York just because he was, you know, the first one that came over in, in the big deal. Right. But, uh, you know, there, there's still a ton of value to be had there. And there, there's one thing I want to point out that actually you, you made me think of here, because I think 20 home runs for a shortstop is a solid total. I have no gripe with that. I think Lindor putting up 20 home runs is totally fine. Here's what is alarming me a little bit. If we go back to 2017, the first year you mentioned of that window, 44 doubles, the next year, 42 doubles, the next year, 40 doubles. That really adds to your slugging percentage long term. All three of those years, his slugging percentage was above 500. Then you get to 2021, only 16 doubles compared to 20 home runs, which I found really alarming the first time I saw it. And because of that, his slugging percentage was all the way down at 412. So I think that people are misconceiving his power drought with home runs. And I think it's a lot more with, like you said, hitting line drives, going gap to gap like he used to. And that's a thing that Lindor can fix without juice balls. I think that that's just an approach thing that has been lost in translation uh, when the trade occurred. I think Lindor can still be a solid extra base hits, uh, extra base hit guy. Maybe he's not going to hit 30 home runs every year, but I'm personally okay with that if he's playing platinum glove defense and his OPS is near you know the 800s, the 850s, like it can be. I'll add one more thing on Lindor as well. He had a 248 batting average on balls in play. That was the seventh lowest in all of baseball that season. You Doesn't think help. about him at his best. Again, that yeah, that's a great example of just actually getting unlucky. You think about when Lindor's at his best, you know, he's using his speed. He's, you know, spraying line drives all over. That is something that should regress positively for him. I do want to touch on the other piece of that trade that, again, I just think is so symbolic and is always going to be of Cohen's. Uh, you know, tenure and just where this goes. And when I think of the Mets, I think of Cohen a lot because of how, you know, outspoken he is at times. And, mm-hmm. uh, but, but that is Carlos Carrasco, who you mentioned before, who it, his season just got off to a terrible start. I always, you know, you don't always want to write off seasons completely because there were stats accrued and there were performances to be had. But when players start the season injured, they take a while to come back. You know, sometimes something goes wrong in the rehab they're not in mid-season form when everyone else is in mid-season form it's hard to put as much weight into a year like that than you know any other slump type of year yeah i mean i mean it's pretty obvious now um but 
Carlos Carrasco was pitching injured. I think, I think he, you know, I think he's recovered from uh, his sickness. I don't think that's a, a present issue anymore, but the guy was injured. I don't think he was pitching at a hundred percent. He had those horrible first inning woes that he just could not get over. But if we look at uh, some of the, uh, the hard numbers here, I mean, it's still 18 walks and 53 innings, 50 strikeouts. So those numbers are solid. Cookie just gave up a lot of long balls. He could never get out of his own way early in the, in the, in the innings. And he recently posted on his Instagram about, uh, you know, sort of his training uh, in the offseason. You could see the marks on his arm from his surgery. So I'm thinking that he'll be fully rested and fully healthy for the 2022 season. And I think that'll be a much better gauge of the pitcher that he's going to be for the Mets. If he comes out and he doesn't show out again in 2022, I mean, you might, you have to consider that part of the trade a, fa- uh, a failure just because Cookie was not the uh, reliable number three or number four starter that the Mets so desperately needed in 2021 outside of, you know, the top end of their rotation. It's going to be a great thing that, you know, if DeGrom Scherzer stay relatively healthy, even if they don't make, you know, 34 starts, as long as you're not just having long absences. And then Carlos Carrasco can really slide into that number three role. Eno Saris of The Athletic, you know, who has his pitching plus metrics that he does a lot of great work with. He did uh, say at one point that Carlos Carrasco had a 104 location plus, which means he was, you know, really doing a good job of of spotting yeah. his pitches well. And, and again, like you said, uh, the stuff, the actual quality of his pitches being down can be explained a little bit by injury. You know, he's again, you know, another solid bounce back bat. I want to close with those three hitters that you brought in, in addition to Scherzer this off season, because one, I think they're each interesting in their own right, but two, just so much of the discourse I saw about the Mets after that happened was about, well, where are all these guys going to play? And does this mean mm-hmm. a trade's coming? And this is a problem. And I think this is the great thing about being a big market team and operating like a big market team. Just get good players in there. It gives you flexibility in trades. It gives you depth for when injuries happen, when aggression happens. And, you know, there will always be a way to figure that out. Playing time like that will always sort itself out. Yeah, I think you you worded it really well there. The point is to get the talent first, then figure out the process later. Um, I personally would have been very satisfied if the signees ended at Eduardo Escobar and Mark Canna, like I thought they would. And then the Mets splashed out of nowhere and brought in Starling Marte in a four-year deal, and that really just solidified this outfield. You mentioned it before about planning for injuries. I love Brandon Nimmo maybe more than any other Mets fan, but the fact is that the guy has not played a full season yet, and he's been in the league for about five years. You have to plan for that kind of thing. Now Nimmo doesn't have to play center field because we have a true center fielder out there in Starling Marte. Uh, I really liked the Mark Canna signing just because I was a little high on Seiya Suzuki, but you would have had to give Suzuki more years, more money, and there's much more of a variable there because he was playing in Japan. We don't know how that's going to translate, especially for position players. That's usually a hard adjustment. And then I truly, truly love the Eduardo Escobar signing. He can play second and third, sort of what Jeff McNeil was giving us, although with a limited production last season. Uh, He's switch hitting, uh, and he's just been consistent as hell. You know exactly what you're going to get out of him. A 105, 110 OPS plus kind of guy, 20 to 30 home runs if you're lucky, and just, you know, solid serviceable defense, and you're getting him at a premium price of two years, $20 million. So the Mets did not break the bank at all to get these guys in fact the three of these guys combined was just around what they paid scherzer uh, and they got solid depth they could they have a stacked bench now of guys that were iffy starters that can turn into great bench pieces so the mets have all these pieces offensively now for depth the next part for me is going to be getting more pitching depth 
these guys even more so than Scherzer kind of really fit that model of like, let's get some veterans in here who can help us compete now. And then while underneath we have that farm system building up. So these were the signings where I really started to see that come together. That reminded me of those early new ownership Dodgers years. And this has been the case in baseball for a number of years now, but but I, I think this is a great opportunity to make the point and drive it home is that, like major league baseball these days and the way you know that really smart front offices view it it's not it's it's definitely not about having the five best players on a team and it's becoming less and less about having the best 25 man roster and it's becoming more about having the best 40 man roster i know you do a great uh bit posting every every mlb team's worst lineup and what you really want to avoid, you know, over the course of a 162 game season is just avoid, you know, when the bottom four hitters in your lineup are just going to be automatic out. So yeah. if Pete Alonso does need to miss three weeks at some point, we can plug in, you know, Marcana, slide Eduardo Escobar over here, and it's not yep. going to absolutely crater our offense. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, as much as I love the top heaviness of our rotation in DeGrom and Scherzer, um, you don't want top heaviness in your lineup, especially with an offense that has been as anemic as the Mets have, especially in their home games. This is a team that has a really weirdly tough time hitting in their home ballpark. And that's another thing I loved about these signings, the expected values and the numbers at City Field for all three of these guys who have hit really well against the Mets at their ballpark. So they should fit in really nicely in that regard. But like you said, now you have Dom Smith on the bench. So if Pete Alonso needs to miss time, Dom can play his natural position and get some reps there. Jeff McNeil can play second, third, and left field, and now he's a bench piece for you, so you can move him around wherever you want. Robinson Cano can be sort of a platoon DH second baseman. Throw him in there whenever you want. You have a ton of pieces now, and maybe not all of them will work. That's There's no guarantee that all of these guys will have great 2022s, but at least you have options. Now, at least you're not out there in May with, I love him to death, but Joneshwi, Joneshwi Fargus in center field or Wilfredo Tovar playing shortstop. You know, you're not bottomed out completely you know, a third of the way through the season. Can you talk to us a little bit about the importance of the Mets having a true center fielder? I know you mentioned Nimmo and how he can't stay healthy, but defense, this has been a spot for the Mets now for a few years where I feel like they've either had a light hitting center fielder or they're, they're moving the defensive outfield around. So the defense is suffering and, and for Starling Marte, you know, like he, he's going to be, you know, bring it on defense. He's going to bring it on the base pass. He's going to bring it, as a hitter, my favorite stat that I love about him moving forward is that he had a 28.4 uh, feet per second sprint speed in 2021. And that's basically as fast as he always been. Obviously, mm-hmm. he had the 47 steals last season. You know, stolen bases, they're, they're such a product of, you know, wanting to steal that I would caution Mets fans not to look at Marte's stolen base total as you know too much of the success mm. that he has he's still fast and that that's the biggest point that you can you can look at that on baseball savant and say as of 2021 even though he's getting older there was no slippage in the speed yeah i, I think having that that true center fielder is so refreshing for the mets because when you think of the center fielders that the mets have had in recent times like you said it's a it's kind of one side of the coin you had Juan Lagares, who was a gold glove center fielder really couldn't hit a lick then you had brandon nimmo who was solid on base numbers but his his range in the outfield wasn't what it was supposed to be it was more of a corner outfielder now you're getting starling Marte, and it's on a four-year deal which i'm a little bit wary of especially you know when you get to that last year Marte will be i think 37 um but still he is the real deal you know 40 
40 stolen base kind of guy. He has pop for sure. And he plays solid defense and he's been doing it for years and years and years. And that's sort of just what the Mets have been missing in their starting nine outside of, you know, a catcher, which is a whole nother discussion, but a guy that can really patrol center field and track down fly balls. And what is, you know, pretty much a cavernous ballpark still, even though they've moved the fences in about 30 feet from its opening city field is a tough place to be a fielder, especially if you're an outfielder. So I think having Nimmo in left field, where he'll seem more comfortable. He has a bit of a weaker arm, but he still has the range to get out there and make great plays as a left fielder. Mark Canna is a natural right fielder, and then you have Sterling Marte in center, and I think you have a solid defensive outfield now. I can't recommend Jolly Olive's YouTube videos enough. Again, he is on Twitter at Jolly underscore Olive, and you can find his YouTube content at his page, Jolly Olive. He does the Shea Stason show with former Mets pitcher Jerry Blevins, and again, you're part of uh john boy media and you, you guys are just really doing some great things i saw you know some of the pictures of the new office on twitter that is just like an extremely exciting time it seems for for one new york baseball but then two uh what you guys got going on at the homeland as well yeah man it's been a lot of fun it's been a crazy you know year and a half but i'm just happy to be here <laughs> <laughs>